thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. Hello and welcome to the inaugural Locations Unknown podcast. I'm Joe Irado and I'm here with Mike Van de Bogart. Um, we're both avid outdoorsmen. Uh, we love to go hiking, camping, backpacking, you name it, as long as it's a national park, an interesting place, uh, and tons of hard work. We love the backcountry. We don't like just doing the, the normal campsites. Um, no, we, we, like to, we like to get into the park, uh, you know, many day hikes. Car camping's easy. Car camping's easy. We don't like doing that stuff. No, we, we want some risk when we go been all over the country uh i've it's my 10th year of doing backcountry hikes with a group of guys that we've we go with every year we've been to glacier uh the tetons uh joe you just got back from a really fun trip overseas tell us a little about that yeah i was just in africa uh about a month ago and we summited mount kilimanjaro it was uh one of the most difficult things i've ever done but uh, again, my, uh, I think between the two of us, our vacation is hard work, backcountry hiking, as opposed to, you know, sit on a beach work sometimes, but we really enjoy the outdoors. I know, I know sometimes when we're back, back in there, uh, you, you think, why am I not on a beach right now? <laughs> It'd be a lot easier, but, uh, yeah, those are fun. Uh, those are, those are like, uh, the vacations afterward on camping is okay. Let's go to a beach and relax or go get a massage or something or find a bar somewhere yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, or, just drink, yeah, or just drink the pain away. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, Mike, tell us a little bit about how you started this podcast. Cause I'm actually a follow on, uh, this is, this is all Mike's brainchild. Um, but just, I love the idea and semi begged to be a part of the show. So so, um, I kind of came up with this idea uh, a few years ago. I watched this amazing documentary on Amazon called Missing 411 that hosted by a guy that used to do the Survivor Man shows. He, they, they followed a couple different unknown, unsolved cases, and it's, it's fascinating what, you know, some of these people seem to vanish into thin air. You know, to this day, most of them are unsolved. The law enforcement are puzzled. Search and rescue has no idea what, you know, they'll go through a park four or five times, not find a trace of this person. They'll have canine dogs in there, uh, helicopters with FLIR. It got me into researching this topic more and more. I, you know, once I dug into it, I realized there's thousands of unsolved cases across the country involving our, the, you know, the wilderness. It's not easy to find information on these cases. I've been recently filing a lot of Freedom of Information Acts with the National Park Service to try to get case documents. The thing I'm really finding out is the National Park Service doesn't keep a, a record of these people missing. Each park may have their own records, but they're not talking together. Yeah, I think it's safe to say they probably know what's going on in their park, but no one's... and and. Me and Mike are, I'd say, are into conspiracy theorists, but we're not huge conspiracy theorists as it is. Um, we like the more of, uh, you know, finding the explanation behind events. And we thought, you know, one of the things that would be neat that no one's done so far and we're looking into is basically linking all the data, of the parks and the missing persons cases, because there could be links between parks or uh, different areas that are having these missing persons things going on. So is there foul play? Are there just people having accidents, which... When we go to parks, we always hear stories about the latest person that fell off a cliff or we, uh, you know, I have kids, Mike doesn't, but when I bring my kids to the parks, I'm always aware of, you know, bobcats, mountain lions, things that can grab the little ones. So there are always those types of cases and we're not going to cover a lot of those on this show because they're, they're explained. Everyone knows what happened. We're more interested in the ones where 
We're not saying aliens came down and grabbed him or anything like that, but the person was never found. You know, there, there's stories of, like Mike said, you know, two-year-old, they turn their backs, turn around, he's gone. They start search partying within hours, never to be found again. Exactly. And we, we're not going to rule out anything. I'm, I'm all about the facts. So if, if we can piece the facts together for a, a scenario of how this person might, dis, you know, might gone missing, I, I think that's what we're trying to do. And we're not trying to come up with our own opinions on these cases. We, we're going to try and present the facts, uh, you know, talk about the park they went, went missing in, um, all the events that led up to the person missing, the timeline after they went missing. And then we are going to kind of go through the list of plausible explanations from the very, you know, uh, exposure or uh, animal attack to maybe some of the more far out, no, you know, theories that people have. Some of these cases have captured the national attention of people. And there's a lot of crazy theories out there of what happened to these people. And it, it's just really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we're not to be morbid, but we're going to try and make it a little bit fun. Uh, we'll throw in our opinion at, at, at some some scenarios, you know, just talk about what are the ongoing theories? What do law, law enforcement think? Uh, in a few episodes, I'm sure we're going to have a, a couple of experts on. So whether it be people from law enforcement or, you know, even better, we're, we're already talking with people who are in uh, the National Park Service and they'll just give their take on the cases. So we're going to have a lot of fun on this podcast deliver some content in which uh, we've kind of searched. There isn't a podcast uh, like this out there. So without further ado, we're going to jump into the curious case of Paul Fugate. This being our first podcast, we'll kind of go over our format. Mike and I were thinking we're going to do kind of a, a profile on the park to give you an idea of you know where the disappearance occurred, if it was in a national park, a national monument, wherever it was. So give you an idea of the size of the park, what it's like, its features and then give you a, a profile of the individual that went missing. Then we'll talk about the timeline as we have it, and we're limited to the records we can get, whether it be news articles from the time, park records from uh, our FOIA requests, and things like that, and then just give our opinions on the case. So uh, let's get going. Mike, you want to start us out with the park profile? Yeah, so this is an interesting case. Uh, Paul went missing uh, in a park uh, called, um, let me try to get the name right, uh, Chiricahua National Monument Park in Arizona. This is interesting park. It's a small park. It only has 17 miles of trails, but it, it kind of has a, if you're looking at the history of park, it's got an interesting history, kind of a bloody history. Park was originally inhabited by Apache Indians as early as the 1400s. While they lived there, they were constantly defending their, their territory from the Spanish, uh, Mexicans, and eventually Americans. Unfortunately, by 1886, they were forced off their land into a reservation and shortly thereafter, European immigrants settled the area and created one of the first ranches on the park. But as far as the park goes, the geology, uh, 27 million years ago, a uh, volcanic eruption uh, went off there and you know spewed out this white hot, hot ash. And it kind of shaped the park. So you kind of have that volcanic rock. I, get, I was on a hiking trip in Hawaii um, on one of the, the big volcanoes on the Big Island. It, it reminds me a little bit of that. Uh, you've got a lot of hardened, hardened rock. It's like all those chimney shoots. Chimney shoots. Yeah, that's, that's like the best way to describe it. It's yeah, like exactly. those layers and layers you can, where you can actually see like lines going through to like separate thousands of years of development from yep. like the wind breaking it down and all the other things. And uh, <laughs> as, as far as elevation of the park goes, it's not uh, the entrance to the park's about 5,100 feet. The summit of Sugarloaf Mountain is about 7,300 feet. 
So this, this is a small park. Small park. I think they said about 12,000 square acres or square miles. Yeah, and, and uh, just to give you an idea, this is it's in southern Arizona, but it's within you know 10 miles of the Mexican border. 10 miles of the Mexican border. It it's it's remote as far as cities go. The closest city is Tucson, which is about 130 miles to the uh, west. It's your typical desert climate. At night, it gets really cold. During the day, it gets really hot. During the time that Paul disappeared, the average low would have been around 29 degrees Fahrenheit. Average high about 56 and very little rain about like moderate moderate about 2.9 inches so if you've ever been to a park in the southwest at any elevation it's going to be similar to that closest thing we can think of we were both on a hiking trip in zion national park and very similar which is Zion National Park's in Utah, so very similar climate. Except we were there during an off-season, like, monsoon storm that came up. Yeah. We, was, we dressed for desert weather, and it rained for, like, three days straight. We were one of the last groups to get out of the uh, the Narrows before the flooding started, which is, uh, you don't want to be caught down there when it starts raining. I yeah, um, <laughs> I was going to say fun fact, but I guess I'll just say facts. It's not too fun, but we, we were there during the largest death that that park has seen in 150 years at one day. And it was basically a group of people went into the Narrows right before the flash flood occurred and uh, they did not make it out. And if you've ever been around during the flash floods or been in the Narrows and you can imagine millions of gallons of water rushing through such a small space all at one time, it's it's brutal. And I couldn't imagine what it went through. So, yeah, you're walking down through the Narrows (laughs) and you see these giant boulders the size of a Greyhound bus that look like they've been uprooted. Yeah. And trees stuck in walls, trees stuck in walls. And you just (laughs) are rock walls. Yeah. You think about the force of water that would have to take to move something that big. And then you realize, yeah, you don't want to be stuck down here when it starts raining. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So that's a kind of a basic overview of Chiricahua National Monument Park. Joe's now going to kind of go through a profile of Paul. Yeah, let's talk about Paul. Paul was a park ranger. And, you know, as we, we were going to keep mentioning, you know, the size of this park is very small compared to, I don't know, Mike, if you want to look up while, while I'm talking, you can look up how big like Glacier is because that's a pretty big park. But this was, uh, they, they have, what do they say, 17 miles of, of sure. uh, trails yeah. lead through. I mean, that's, that's nothing. That, that's like a, a local park around here. So, I mean, it still is a national park, but it's not too big. So you can't imagine they're not going to have tons of park rangers. The terrain should be well known. I guess that's the main thing I want to uh, pull across here is if you're a park ranger at a park that big, you're going to know every square inch of that place, like the back of your hand. And when Mike and I were hiking up in, in Glacier, I mean, we met people along in the trail that were trail maintenance people 13 miles, 14 miles into the back country. And that was only the first leg of the loop that have only worked there for a few years and they know, you know, hidden spots, but they know, they know every inch of a park that size. So he was a park ranger at the, uh, Chiricahua national monument park in Arizona. His classification is still lost slash injured or missing. He was born in 1938. So he'd be about 80 years old now, give or take. I didn't do the math in my head. Uh, at the time he went missing, he was 41 years old, his height and weight. They average him around between five, five and five ten. Uh, between 160, 170 pounds. So, I mean, he was a fit guy, uh, average height, average weight, nothing shocking there that would, you know, jump out me, you know, to say maybe something went wrong. Last scene. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying an interesting fact that you see in a lot of these disappearances is people like to look into their family life. And one of the things you learned, you learn about Paul is him and his wife were very close in an interview just recently with his wife, she stated that they would often finish each other's sentences. So this wasn't a man who was, 
you know, going out into the woods to, to lose himself. Yeah, it wasn't a park ranger because he wanted to be a hermit. Yeah, he, uh, <laughs> he loved his wife. Um, there, there was no indication that he was going out to commit suicide or anything like that. So I just wanted to fill, you know, add that. No, to that's the, important. The I think that, yeah, that gives, because there's a lot of things and, you know, we're not law enforcement. We're not going to claim to be. We've watched enough shows, I think, and you start looking for red flags about the people involved in the case or if that person was just someone who had a ton of gambling debt or a ton of debt in general and just wanted to disappear themselves type of thing. A lot of the, and we'll go into it a little bit, but this didn't fit that description. So the last he was seen was wearing his gray National Park Service uniform, which I don't think they've changed since then. I don't think they have. So I think if you're picturing a park ranger now, that's what Paul was wearing. So he had his, his park service uniform. Uh, he had his jacket on. Uh, jockey shorts, white socks, and green work boots. And this was the, the description from all the records. His characteristics, so let's, let's just paint a picture of what Paul looked like. He was a Caucasian male, so he was white, graying, brown hair, blue eyes. Fugate's hair was long at the time of his disappearance. Uh, he had a full beard and a mustache, uh, pronounced widow's peak, and he wore uh, thick granny style eyeglasses, which is the, which is the, the characteristic that was written down. Poor Paul. Yeah, poor Paul. Um, <laughs> But still, I mean, I'm, I, I, I've seen a picture of him. We're going to post one on the website. He looks like a park ranger. That's the best way to describe it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a profile, and, and Mike and I have seen a ton of park rangers. They all look the same. They I all mean, look it's, the same. It yeah. is a profile. They all look the same, and, and cartoons are based on He looked like a cartoon park ranger. So average build, average height, wearing the park ranger uniform with his granny glasses, you know, serving, you know taking over his little swath of land. The one thing that showed up as, I won't even call it a red flag, but they felt worth mentioning this in like an 81 New York Times article, was in the year before his disappearance. So it was 1970. He disappeared in 1980. Paul was dismissed from his post for, and they they stated, they didn't say what the other things were, but among other things, wearing long hair and a handlebar mustache. I mean, that's the 70s. I mean, so he was, I think for 1970 standard was too progressive for the park service. If you can imagine what that that's like with his, you know, too long of hair and handlebar uh, handlebar mustache. So, but after a dispute with the service, Mr. Fugate uh, was reinstated in 1976 and his back pain benefits were restored. So, I mean, he, he was out for six years because of his hair and a handlebar mustache. Which, which shocks me being that it was the 70s. I've seen pictures of my dad from back then. And uh, sounds just like what he was dressed yeah. with. So, so that, that's the one thing that shows up on his record that I've listed as reprimands. But outside of that, you know, that it seems like a pretty low-level guy. He's got a small uh, national park to look over that he's a park ranger at. Not, nothing too new, too big there. So just to, to jump back, uh, Joe had asked me to look up the size of glacier compared to yes um so glacier has a a footprint of about 1600 square miles in comparison um chiricahua has about i think it's close to 12,000 square acres yeah so very small you're talking 48 (laughs) kilometers square kilometers um I don't, I don't have the, uh, you know, the math in front of me, but it's a very tiny part. Yeah, it's, it's not big. So, and, and again, the reason we say that is you have park rangers at Glacier that only worked there for a few years that know pretty much all of Glacier, probably hiked most of the trails by then. You have miles and miles of trails. This was small. So 
you know, people might discount, you know, if you have a big swath of land and you go missing, maybe he lost himself. You can't get lost in that park. No. I think if we went there now, never being there before, we could hike every inch of hiking trail because it's only 17 miles. That's nothing. We'll get that done in two days. Um, we would probably know most of the park just after, after a week. Personal experience. I've been backcountry hiking in Canyonlands in uh, Utah. We were out there for a week and saw one person. So, yeah. and we actually did, ended up getting lost down in the canyons. Well, and that's like a labyrinth too. Yeah. So it's you're the maze. Yeah. You're getting that in this one. It's, it's, you're not having any of those, uh, well-defined trails. Exactly. Um, it's, it's more, it's more safe uh, of a park compared to Canyonlands. And again, you're talking about a guy who worked there. This well, was and, like and, the, and there's plenty day. of water, you know, Canyonlands yeah. is a good example. Like you could run out of water. We if did. You get lost. <laughs> no, we did. Yeah. We ran out of water. <laughs> we marked all the, the flowing water locations on our map and we got to each one and, there was no water. So we, there was a point where we went for over a day without pretty much any water. But yeah, this, so yeah, Chiricahua has got water. It's got shelter. It's, you know, moderate temperature season. So it's not like he froze overnight after he got lost. So there's a lot of things that say, you know, one interesting aspect was that when he went out on the hike that he ended up disappearing on, he didn't take his radio with him, which that's uh, abnormal. That is abnormal. I I've come across and so have you many park rangers and they, you know, they're always in constant contact with. Oh, it's the, like your keys. It's yeah. They're in constant contact with your main office. So one of the facts of the case just doesn't add up to me. I, I can't think of any reason why if you were a park ranger, you wouldn't go out in to the park without your, your radio. Yeah. That seems like the first thing I'm checking for. Absolutely. I'm getting ready to start my shift. Oh, I'm accused of, I, I would never <laughs> be accused of being an ultralight backpacker no i bring i bring crap all the time that i definitely don't need and every time i'm out there i'm like and the, the, why did i bring this the interesting thing is that that fact which to me seems like a, a big deal is kind of glossed over in all of the all of the articles and news reports you read about and some of them don't even mention it yeah i would say unless you normally do this stuff you wouldn't realize how weird that is yeah so unless you know like i said we're, we're gonna be talking a lot of park rangers we'll have to remember to bring that up uh to us yeah there's there's certain tools that when you're doing your job you just always have that'd be a main one. Yeah. So let's let's jump into the timeline. So the date is January 13th, 1980. That is the date he went disappearing in. This is going to be a rather small timeline because it, it's from all the records we have, they recorded like three times that date and everything else is just referenced as days later, later that year, later earlier the next year. So we uh, we'll do some shows later on where we have minute by minute logs, which are awesome. And I, I would like to say that I have requested a I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the Park Service on Paul. If anybody out there that's listening has ever worked with the government or tried to request anything from the government, they work very slow. Being that the Park Service has notoriously kept bad records on missing persons, I'm not expecting we're going to get anything out of it, but if we do get a case file on Paul at some point, maybe we'll revisit this case down oh, the road. Oh, that'd be awesome. So, Yeah, absolutely. I think we'd revisit any case we get more information on. All right, so we're January 13th, 1980. Uh, it's 2 p.m., and this is the last time with, uh, I'd say quotes around it, the last time someone saw Paul. Paul left his office to do foot patrol, and he was checking trails that were leading to the recently acquired Fairway Ranch. And the Fairway Ranch is, uh, and Mike mentioned this, there's been kind of the push and shove with the Apache Nation in that area. The Fairway Ranch preserves an area associated with the final conflicts with the local Apache. So it's basically one of the last frontier settlements 
of that area. So they they recently acquired that and made it a part of the park. And it's it's actually a great history. We won't go into it here, but from the little bit I looked at it, when you look at the Fairway Ranch, basically the reason that they had this become a national monument was the person who ran the Fairway Ranch was promoting the ranch as a tourist location. And he wanted people to go check out the park as a way to like kind of attach what he had going with that area because it is a neat looking area, although it's small. So he was a big part of making that a national monument. And that actually became what year did that become a national monument at? Do we even say that? Um, I didn't see when it became April 18th, 1924. There we go. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's been there for a while. Um, but yeah, so he was going to just do a final check. It sounds like he was just doing like one last round in his park. Who knows? It probably was a quarter of the entire length of all the foot miles you could do in the park because uh, there wasn't much there. But he left his office at 2 p.m. on the 13th, 1980. Um, he was going to do a check on the trails leading to the Fairway Ranch. And the last person he talked to was a clerk that was working in the office. And he told the only her, other person working in the park that day. Yeah. By the so, way, too. yeah. So he told her that if he's not back by 430 to just shut down and she can go on, which she did. You know, she he didn't come back. So she shut down and left. And there was one instance and Mike, I know you read about this. There's one instance at four o'clock where one somebody saw him in a pickup truck. Or yeah, something. there was an unsubstantiated ups, claim that someone had seen him in a pickup truck slumped down in between two other male individuals. Uh, and law enforcement, you know, tried to follow that lead, but obviously we're never able to find any evidence of that. Um, obviously there were no, there's no foot video footage or any type of photographic evidence of it. That's just a weird claim. So yeah. <laughs> like, it's a weird claim. Um, like I, I saw, I saw him a half hour before the park closed slumped between two men in a truck. Yeah. And like, I mean, <laughs> that's, you know, that's kind of a good segue into one of the main theories of what happened to Paul was a lot of people think that he stumbled across a drug deal or you know, some other type of illegal activity going on and being a badged law enforcement officer, they saw him coming and obviously... Yeah, they, they deal with the Mexican drug cartel. They're not yeah, gonna, they didn't want him to... ask questions. They didn't want him to get out of there. But even the, the most logical explanation, I guess you could say, there were people still that said there's really only maybe a 50% chance that's what actually happened. And, uh, you know, we haven't really been able to come across a lot of detailed case files on him, so we don't know if... Law enforcement agency agents found uh, car, tr- you know, truck tracks or any kind of struggle. It doesn't sure. sound like they did. Yeah, it's it's it, they seem to have let that go. So whether that's an instance of local law enforcement being really bad at their job or it just didn't seem like there's anything there worth pursuing even after years. And like you said earlier, his description was white average build male, uh, build male with long hair and beard. Yeah. Um, so that's like everybody. So like if you're seeing somebody across the street through the windshield of a truck, uh, well, that kind of looks like Paul. Yeah, maybe it's Paul. Yeah. Uh, it could, it could have been your dad. You said your dad looked like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, Mike's dad was there and, uh, no, no, he was <laughs> no, not there. Not. <laughs> um, so basically Paul didn't return. He was gone outside of that little thing where someone thought they might've saw him at four o'clock, but he never returned. And this is kind of where the timeline ends with legitimate times and dates. But basically, at some point, somebody realized he wasn't coming back. And maybe it was, you know, he didn't come back from work. I can't tell you if he normally worked late or he was, you know, on, uh, you know, home at 630 on the dot every day. And all of a sudden he didn't. And Dottie, his wife, decided that there was something wrong. 
After he didn't return, they initially went through the extensive search and rescue operations. So they started that on their 17 square miles, not a big area, and they turned up absolutely nothing. That's, like I said, they, they'll do big search and rescues on large areas in national parks, and they'll find people relatively quickly. Uh, one thing that should be noted, too, is that obviously when anybody goes missing in a national park, they you know conduct a massive search and rescue operation. But when it's one of their own, when it's another law enforcement officer that's gone missing, uh, they really... From other cases I've read, they really take that the utmost. Sure. Like, if if another park ranger is missing in the park, they don't hold back. They bring everyone out to look. And um, from what I've read in this case, there was hundreds of search and rescue people looking for him in the days after the disappearance, and absolutely nothing was found. They didn't find they didn't find tracks. They didn't find clothing. They didn't find uh, any sign of a struggle or an animal attack. Yeah, and that's what's crazy because you can think of, uh, you know, like we, we brought up Zion and why we did it is because that's of the places we've gone. I think that's probably the closest to what I would imagine. You know, I've been looking at pictures of this place and what I'd imagine it is. And you could have rock crevasses, uh, little areas where you could slip and fall and get hurt. Like the guy who was doing his uh, cave diving and had to cut his arm off because nobody came around. But those are in big areas, like I said, and this is a guy who's in a small park. He knows what he's doing. He's yeah. he's checking well-established trails. So even if he got lost or fell and got injured, these people know how to search in those areas. There's not a lot of space to cover in 17 square miles for search and rescue. Exactly. And they know they know what they're doing. You know, they'll, they'll do a good job. We've seen a couple underway, uh, especially after at Zion, when all those people died, they recovered the bodies instantly. And some of them were a few miles downstream. And um, being that this park is less traveled by the public, especially more so back then, when search and rescue went in there, they, there should be some expectation that you know a lot of the area is going to be undisturbed. Oh, sure. So if there was a drug deal going on, I would assume you know these people aren't going to be using the main road in and out of the park. They probably maybe had off-road vehicles that came into the park. You'd have to assume that search and rescue is going to find some type of evidence of you know, vehicles leaving the park. Well, some yeah, type even, of track or, even the path he checked. Hell, yeah. like, like, like you said, it's, it's not a big park. It's not, and, and no offense to anyone who's there now, but it's not that exciting of a national park with all the different ones in the area. So that to me, uh, Mike and I talked about this. That's a park we wouldn't go visit. We're from Wisconsin. That's pretty far away. If we're going that far, we're going to go somewhere else. If you live in the area, you might go do some day hikes there or you're passing through. But if he is the last person to go down the trail at night, it's not like 200 people took that trail later that day and now you have, you don't know whose footprints are what. You know, there's going to be signs of something that you should be able to pick up because there's not a lot of activity. And another uh, interesting aspect too is I know they mentioned that this park in this area of the country, they, they do deal with a lot of drug trafficking, a lot of uh, human trafficking. But again, in all the cases I've, I've heard about of drug and human trafficking, a lot of that tends to happen at night. They're not doing it during the, the afternoon. They don't want to be caught. That's the, you know, the main reason why they pick a remote <laughs> area. Do, drug trafficking. do, yeah, not, get do not get caught. <laughs> so again, it's, it's strange that he was, you know, out on a daily hike in the you know, early afternoon and then, you know, came across a big drug deal. And then they obviously kidnapped him or killed him or whatever they did to him. And that happened in the middle of the afternoon. Again, that's another when they say they they think that he, be, you know, came across a drug deal gone bad. Why was this happening at two in the afternoon or three in the afternoon? That doesn't make sure. any sense to me either. Yeah. Even and even if it did happen at, you know, four thirty, five thirty. Yeah. You know, um, you're checking out a little thing. I mean, in 
how fast you walk, especially a park ranger, they can get around quick. Yeah. He could probably do all 17 square, uh, 17 miles of trails. And he was traveling light. He had no gear. As I say, if he, if yeah. he's, he could probably do the entire hiking path in a day in that park, if, if we're being honest and, and fair, because these guys can really move um, in those places. So it's not like if he left at two, it's going to take him six hours to check the trail and come back. I'm sure he intended to go out, check it quick, and then probably get home because he's yeah. been doing this for years and years and years in such a small area. This is very routine. Well, and the park closed at 4.30, so obviously he even told the clerk that, you know, close the park down if I'm not back. So he had, he had an understanding. Yeah, why would you say that if you weren't planning to come back by well, 4.30? Yeah, if you would say something like, I'm not going to be back by 4.30, so just shut it down. Yeah. If you say, I, if I'm not, that means you might be, you know, 4.30. 35, 4.40, maybe 5 o'clock at the most. You might not be here for the official closing time, and if not, just do it without me, no big deal. So he expected to be back before 5 o'clock, in, in my opinion. Exactly, and so that leads you leads us to other possible scenarios. So we've covered the, the scenario that every, you know, law enforcement's kind of, you know, put their hat, hung their hat on, and a lot of people think, well, it was a drug deal gone bad. You know, what are some of the other causes that you know could have caused his disappearance so you, you have issues of maybe exposure or maybe fell down one of those crevasses or you know there's not really a lot of animals in the area that would cause a you know a park ranger an issue well and that's a big thing too i mean let's let's say mountain lion bobcat something grabbed him that's where you have flesh clothing bone you have evidence you know animals aren't Some cleaning up crime. you know yeah. evidence aren't cleaning up uh, animals aren't cleaning up murder scenes no you know, they're, they're, they're gonna grab their meal and, and like i said he's a big guy you're going to find blood on the ground. You're going to find, you know, torn clothing. Uh, you're going to find a, a struggle. You're going to see kicked up dirt. Uh, you, you'll, you might even see if it's a, you know, bobcat or a mountain lion, you might see drag marks. Um, obviously, none of that was found in this case. And uh, it's, it, it, it leads you, you know, it, it's puzzling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, the lack of information on this case, too, is a little, you know, puzzling. Yeah, they didn't keep, they didn't keep good notes. People are still still trying to f solve this. We uh, just recently they upped the the bounty on him to sixty thousand dollars. So anyone who knows any information on this, this yeah, now there's something in it for you. This cold so case. If you're waiting, if you're waiting, you know, yeah. forty years. Now's your time. <laughs> now's your opportunity to get the big payday. It also it's it's worth noting too, and I found this a little strange because it's such a small area. They didn't search anywhere outside the national mine. That is strange. They they basically got to their. 17 square mile line and just said, well, we couldn't have gone this far and then just ended it there. You know, that, that's another thing too, where again, they, I didn't think they did a good job of doing that. You know, what if he wasn't, you know, got involved in a deal, they pulled him off the side. Maybe he decided to run for it for whatever reason and, yeah. and, and took off and maybe got lost out there. The fact that he's not, or maybe he's in hiding still. He's hanging out with Tupac somewhere. Um, no. <laughs> It's close to Mexico. I mean, Chupacabra is not out of the question, but yeah, it's, it's that, that was a little weird to me. And to me, this is also, even up to this point, it's weird because it's unexplained. We haven't found a body yet. There's no real motive for him to disappear on his own accord or for other foul play because there hasn't been evidence, but it gets weird at this point because later that year, the park service officially declared Paul missing and they posted a $5,000 reward. And his family matched it. So we're up to $10,000 reward back in 1980s, which is a lot of money. They also started making salary payments to Dottie, which was his wife. And she worked for the University of Arizona Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. She was a, photog a scientific photographer. 
they started doing, and that makes sense. You know, he's missing. They're going to follow their protocol or whatever. Early 1981. So we're a year later, uh, maybe a little more than a year later, uh, Howard Chapman. Uh, he was at that point the director of the Park Services Western Region. So he's the guy that oversees the park stuff in that area of the United States. He reviewed the case and unilaterally decided Paul voluntarily abandoned his position, meaning he decided, nope, I'm done here. And he said he left on his own accord. He dismissed the case. He basically went to Dottie, uh, this is Paul's wife, and asked her return to return the $6,900 paid to her plus 11% interest. That's and, unbelievable. And, yeah, I know. And then, and then later, the demand for the repayment was changed to a lien on the, his retirement fund. So this guy like went after them hard. So I don't, that, that just doesn't it's make just, sense. That's another odd, if this truly was, and now I'm not saying anything, you know, the conspiracy inside the National Park Service, anything that, I'm not saying that, but this is just <laughs> I'm not another, saying that, followed up by, but, but, <laughs> it's just another odd string of facts about this case, like the, the going out with no radio and stopping at the park border. And then this guy, after he, you know, years after this, disappearance starts coming after the the park ranger's wife for money yeah we're we're not we're not here to solve these things in it but this is what piqued our interest big time is there's a lot of odd things that happened it, that it raised questions that don't have answers that kind of don't make sense and it just ends there you know no, either no one looked into it or you know it was the 80s and they just said ah no big deal um, but that just seems weird to us in our standard now that, you know, this lady's missing her husband. She's still go like to this day, still looking for the still guy. pleading for help yeah. from the public to and, for any information on this. You know, a year after he's gone, you have this guy who's the director of the Park Service Western Region going after her and saying, give us our six thousand dollars back. And on top of it, you owe us interest. <laughs> it, makes you, it makes you wonder what his motives are. Why, yeah, like, why is he going after her? Does he suspect maybe that Paul was involved in the drug deal? Yeah, it's like he was paying her out of his pocket or something. This is like federal park money. Like, it's, he it, shouldn't give a shit. Like, like why would he care about yeah, this money? Uh, it, it really does make you wonder what was going on in the head of, you know, the guy asking for that money because... If it was just a cut and dry missing persons case, he's died in the park somewhere and they just didn't find him, there would be no reason to go after him. But does he suspect that Paul had some type of dealings going on, you know, under the table? Who knows? It, yeah. It's just another, like we said, it's another one of the facts from this case that just don't make sense. And when you add them all up, it's just kind of bizarre, <laughs> to yeah. say the least. Well, she had her last final FU from the park service in that area. She went to appeal and they basically dismissed it and said, sorry, you can't do it because the termination hearing must be requested within 20 days. And the dismissal had been made retroactive to early 1980. So they did this retroactively made the date back to when he disappeared. So <laughs> my guess is there's a lot of people at the time inside the National Park Service that did not like Paul. And <laughs> from his handlebar mustache and yeah. long hair, <laughs> get out of here, you hippie. <laughs> but yeah, that's another, and you, you got to feel really bad for his wife to, you know, after going through the loss of her husband, then she has to deal with this, with the park service. Yeah, she still isn't, not only does she not have closure, 
it's only it's like the anniversary of him disappearing. They're like, give us our money back plus interest. And you could appeal it, but we made it retroactive to a year ago and you need to do it within 20 days. Sorry. So, <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that just adds another, odd, you know, piece to the case. But yeah, we uh, you know, Joe and I look combed through every piece of information on this case we could find and nothing makes sense. Uh, I don't know that I'm personally satisfied with the drug deal gone bad scenario. I, I think even if there was a drug deal that he stumbled across, I think there'd still be evidence of a struggle. I mean, no one's, uh, you know, he's not just going to surrender himself, you know, without any type of fight, especially a park ranger. There's, I don't know. I'm baffled by this one. Yeah, it's it's a weird case. And I'm just... In reading this whole article with all this weird stuff, especially involving kind of the government screwing Dottie over, I'm just picturing like Howard Chapman's the guy with like those big rim glasses, the top hat and a trench coat on Um, like like everybody in like the beginning of the CIA when they first started the CIA. You're kind of like the uh, the smoking man from X-Files. Yes. Everybody looks like with a cigarette. So you have like a room full of those guys and a room full of (laughs) park service guys that look like Paul just kind of all mad at each other. And they're all and Dottie's over here, you know, a photographer of the college, probably like holding the flower in the courtroom like peace, man. Um, it's just a weird stereotypical scene for those times, essentially. But yeah, this is a, a weird case. Really? Yeah. As Mike said, the open theories are really, did he abandon his post? Did he get killed in the botched drug deal? Did he fall into some canyon and hit? And over the you know last 40 years, did he, did he get lost and succumb to exposure? Which yeah, and no I, one's found him in 40 years, which I just think is highly unlikely. And I, I don't know that you could get lost in such a small park and not be found. Yeah. I just I, I come I almost rule out the exposure aspect just because the size of the park, his mm-hmm. experience in the park. Um, yeah, if you're a ranger, you have at least some basic survival techniques, you know, and it wasn't getting, you know, that cold and you, you can get hypothermia pretty quick. But again. You're a ranger. You know what to do. And nothing, nothing that we read suggested that the weather was bad at the time of his disappearance. There wasn't any major storms, uh, snowstorms, rain, rain events. Yeah, we haven't looked um, at like if planets were aligning or anything like that. <laughs> so I yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe uh, some weird celestial event yeah, happened at the moment he disappeared. But that, that's why we like this thing. I mean, there's, there, it's, it should be a very clear cut thing, but it's just he's gone. Just like that. There's no evidence that supports any theory. There's just a couple of weird instances. And again, maybe this this Howard dude was just a jerk. And maybe that was it. Like, there's nothing there. It sounds like he was kind of a kind of a jerk. And or maybe Dottie pissed him off. Maybe she was asking for the money early. I don't know. I don't want to slander anybody. You know, there's there's no big flags here outside of this dude who's experienced didn't bring his walkie out on his last check. And he's gone. He's gone. Never experienced guy just gone off the face of the planet. And there's no reasonable explanation for why based on evidence yeah which who knows maybe someday i know uh it's not impossible i've read of some stories where people have been missing for 20 30 years and a guy will be backcountry hiking and he'll stumble across a bone and they'll they'll analyze it and it sure enough it's the person that's been missing so that does happen so there's a chance that Somebody will be hiking out in this, you know, park and eventually will come across Paul. Uh, everything we've read, I it, it sounds like something well, 60 grand line. Maybe we should take a trip down to uh, yeah. <laughs> and do and spend a week down there. And, and, and I know do our own uh, 
you know, delayed search and rescue. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I really do hope for uh, his wife's sake that um, she eventually someday gets closure in this. And I, I just like, you know, like the, the theme of this whole episode is just kind of a bizarre disappearance. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd, uh, we'd love to hear your opinions too. So I'd say get on our, our Facebook page. Yeah. Uh, send us if you if you have information on this case, that'd be even better. We'd love to. Uh, we will. Uh, we'll post. Yeah, we'll post all of the numbers for the National Parks Missing Persons uh, Service. Uh, you can call if you have any tips on this case. You can call them. Um, you can also call the local sheriff's department down there with any new information on the case. We, uh, Joe and I, both like to thank you for tuning into our our first podcast. I know this one's probably a little rough, rough on the ears, um, but we'll figure it out. If you want to connect with us further, uh, I we are on Facebook at uh, Locations Unknown. You can also go over to our website at locationsunknown.org. Uh, it's kind of a work in progress. I'm adding new cases on there every day, and I'm open to any cases you guys may have that you want added. Yeah, we'll try and uh, we'll try and post information uh, relative to the show. So the links we used uh, to the stories where we got our information uh, have discussions available. So we want the community to get involved. So start talking about the case. Give us your theories, no matter how crazy. We'd love to hear them. If you have any, if you uh, have any cases you'd like us to talk about on a future episode, let us know. If any of you are in law enforcement and work in the Park Service, we'd love to talk to you and even have you on the podcast. We, we'd love to hear your take on some of these disappearances because, like Joe said, we're outdoor enthusiasts. We, we love backcountry hiking. We, you know, we've done a lot of hiking, so we kind of, we, I, you know, I definitely would know what to do in a situation where I got lost or turned around. I, I definitely could survive out in the wilderness for a few days. Step one, panic. Step one, panic. <laughs> Step two, just run blindly in yeah. one direction. Yeah, preferably <laughs> screaming with your arms flailing. Um, Leave all your gear. <laughs> and if you if you head over to our Facebook page, I got I wrote an interesting article about my first hiking trip out in the backcountry in Canyonlands, where our group, you know, came very close to dying out there due to lack of water, and uh, kind of how we got out of the situation by thinking calmly. And uh, part of part of this podcast too, and the website is Joe and I both love the backcountry. We also like to teach people how to properly enjoy the wilderness. I think a lot of people go out into the backcountry unprepared and they, they don't know what they're in for. You know, maybe they've lived in the city their whole life and just want to go out and see nature, but you really got to know what you're doing when you go yeah, out there. There's dad bot, I want to get you in the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of dangers going out in the backcountry, wildlife, um, other people yeah. <laughs> come across some strange people on our, our treks. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, yeah. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast and, uh, we hope to make this a, a monthly monthly podcast. Yeah, there'll Maybe. be more episodes coming, and uh, just just keep subscribed so you can, uh, as soon as they come out, you know more. And as Mike said, uh, if you have suggestions, if you have stories, we would love to hear them. We, we like mystery. We like the outdoors, so just keep everything coming. <laughs>